I enjoy being around the food unless you've spent time with a farmer that I think that you can get swept away into just ingredients arriving at the door and taking advantage of that until you actually meet the person who's doing the hard work to actually bring it to that door. It's something that I hold very dear. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Working for a successful restaurant group can have huge benefits for those starting out their careers. A chance to learn from those that have worked out the glitches, learned from their errors and built a well-oiled machine. It can also allow the opportunity to rise the ranks and work in different venues, serving different offerings while holding onto the same ethos and vision. What's it like for those that have worked their way up to the top of a successful restaurant group? Laura Barado is a group chef of Matt Moran Restaurant. Laura, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. You're pretty busy. You've got a pretty amazing role as a group chef with Matt Moran Restaurants. What does that encompass? Uh, I do have an amazing role. It is a mixture of things. It's going into the venues, doing food tastings, making sure that the narratives of the venues are right, supporting the head chefs of each venue, while also doing Matt's personal side of things, as well as looking at farm ingredients and making sure that we can get those into the venues and be able to produce great food from Matt's farm as well. well. Tell us about the different venues that you're looking after at the moment. So under my banner at the moment, I have Chiswick, North Bondi, Aria, Opera Bar, Opera Kitchen, Barangaroo House, Chop House, the Rockley Pub, which is the new one, um, as well as overseeing crafted by Matt Moran in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you've been you've been with the Matt Moran group for, for a large portion of your of your career. Um, what's what's it been like for you um, moving up through the ranks in a, in a group like that and um, understanding and being part of the ethos of a group? Yeah, look, I've been with Matt this year for 15 years. So I started out at Aria as a mere 18-year-old entering the hospitality industry. I left school when I was in U10 and just I wasn't very academic and needed to get out and start working. So my first job was working in a chicken abattoir, which was um, quite an interesting one. (laughs) I did six months there and went, nah, no thanks. (laughs) I'm going to put this one aside. Um, I was doing my apprenticeship. I'd started my chef's apprenticeship while I was there and then went to the casino and started at the casino at the age of 17 and did my first year of my apprenticeship there and then made the move to Aria because I wanted to get into fine dining. Um, And it was very much kind of sink or swim Um, for me at that point of time. I was living still at my parents' place in Mulgoa, so out near Penrith. So it was a long kind of commute to work, working quite big hours in fine dining at that point of time. Um, and I did four years, four and a bit years at Aria um, before Chiswick's opening was about to happen. And I was actually looking at leaving Aria at that point of time and going on to my next, I guess, learnings, um, which obviously Matt 
Matt knew about and I was doing some trials around Sydney and I'd gotten a couple of offers to move across and Matt called me into the office one day and said, we're going to go for a drive. So off we went, <laughs> um, fast trip to Alara, uh, to a building site at that point of time. And there was me, Richie Dolan and Tim Bryan at that point of time. And we were all standing in this construction site and Matt's like, yeah, so you're not leaving, you're coming here. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and doing what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to explore, you know, the life that you've had in the Matt Moran group in a sec, but go back a little bit. Do you, well, what sort of role did food play for you and your family? I grew up in an Italian family, so food was always the centre of any family gathering um, and still is to this day. So we grew up with my grandparents, both sides of my grandparents um, are Italian and my grandfather during winter would make salamis, um, raise his own pigs, do it from scratch, you know, like get his piglet, raise it, kill it, hang it, bleed it, the whole works. Um, so we used to do that every winter and that was a big part of our family doing winter salamis and then he'd hang them in the garage and smoke them, cure them all himself. And that used to be our big kind of winter treat. So I remember growing up when we were still at school and, you know, doing that, hoping that it was on the weekend or, you know, begging mum for us to take the day off school to, to go and make salamis with my grandfather because at that point of time you would only, well, they to till his end, um, he would only kill the pig if one the moons aligned and two the pig needed to be off heat. So all the everything needed to align for for the salamis to be made. So you'd get a phone call saying, "Yep, it's being done tomorrow," and you're like, "Oh no, I've got to go to school." <laughs> so you'd hope that that would happen on a weekend that you could be involved in it. Um, and it was a whole family thing. Everybody used to come in. My grandmother used to cook lunch. And all the family used to get involved and make the salamis. So that was a big part of it. And then my mum's mum, one of the most phenomenal cooks, used to make everything from scratch. Both my grandparents had their own little market gardens, so they're all very self-sufficient. So we grew up around great produce, great food, making things from scratch um, and always finding, you know, the best ingredients there was only one particular potato that my grandmother used to make gnocchi out of, and if she couldn't find it, there was no gnocchi on the table. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very particular. <laughs> very, very particular. The Italians are very traditional in the, in the way that they do things. So, um, yeah, I grew up around having that kind of instilled in me, and it was always kind of when I was in primary school, it was either that I wanted to be a vet and work around animals or I wanted to be a chef. And obviously I wasn't very academic. So a chef it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned your time at a, a chicken abattoir and they're, they're often quite a confronting um, place at an, a, an abattoir, but given your connection to produce and producers and a career in food, did you, did you take any positives or understandings from that time, um, even though it was so early on? 
Yeah, I I had gone in there. It was actually my dad does a lot of concreting for um, big abattoirs and big food industries and it was one of his mates that we got the job through um, and the whole premise of the job was doing product development for Coles and Woolworths at that point of time and working on new products um, using, using obviously chicken and – I did. Like, I definitely did. It was an eye-opener to see how things start, you know, from the – and I guess that's kind of instilled into me to this day with how close Matt works with farmers um, and kind of the insights that I get from the farmers as well as to this is where it starts and this is now the process that it goes through and you have a better understanding as to the how, how the hard work comes through and how it actually gets to – your chopping boards or your plates um, gives you a better perspective. Like I remember going in there and there was days that we weren't doing development and we were hand tying bows onto like a chicken thigh wrap and we had to hand tie them. We could be doing thousands of these a day. And there was three, three of us that used to just sit there and hand tie bows um, onto chicken thighs. And you kind of don't, you think that there's machines that do all of this and it's kind of like, whoa, hang on a second. <laughs> got to tie three, three little bows onto each thigh and three thighs get packed into a packet and we need to do how many thousands of packets? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, it gives you a perspective of that for sure um, and how to work with the raw ingredients and the processes that it goes through and also, you know, the, the development of the machines that are, have been built to be able to, to process these things now. Apprenticeships are pretty uh, – it's a pretty steep learning curve and it's also, you know, it doesn't – isn't re- remunerated very, very well either until later in your career. Tell us about that period of time. You lived quite a long way from – from ARIA and on a, on a small wage as well. Do you have any stories of the challenges of the sort of during your apprenticeship? Yeah, I, um, my parents were very guarded of me going into the restaurant industry and they knew the big hours that it would take and they knew the long drive that I'd be commuting and they were kind of very protective of that and they weren't too happy with me when I decided that I'd resigned from um, the chicken abattoir and decided that I was going to go into, into restaurants. And I remember my dad in particular was quite upset with me for making that decision. And, you know, that came out of worry for the large hours and, and the travel that I was doing at that point of time. Um, I went into ARIA and to be honest, like I, I really hated it for the first kind of month because we were just exhausted Like it was just long hours, big drives. Um, You'd get to a certain point of the drive and you don't remember how you got home from there because not that you'd fall asleep, but you just zone out. Your brain just would switch off at certain points of time. Um, And it it was hard. It was straining. You are of a point of your life where you're stepping out of your comfort zone and you're not quite sure how to do things and are you good enough to be able to be there? Um, and then you've got these long drive home and back up early to miss peak hour on the way home. So you're only getting four hours sleep um, and then be driving back again. So it was very, I think I did it for about a year 
um, until I decided that, you know, I loved, I got to a point where I loved Aria um, and we were all one big family and that this was going to be a commitment and that it wasn't just going to be a fleeting thing that, you know, I was going to stay there for a while. So I ended up moving out of home and moving into the city and that made it a hell of a lot easier um, to one, concentrate on work and kind of start focusing on my career and stepping it up and building myself through those ranks. You shared the wonderful story of Matt Moran taking you on a trip in the car over to what became Chiswick. Tell us about creating Chiswick. It was so far removed from the Aria sort of offering. Yes, it was. Um, it was an interesting time. It Chiswick to this day would have to be the hardest opening that I've ever done. We were expecting a kind of neighbourhood restaurant that would sit 150 a night and kind of the first weekend in, we were doing 600, 300 for lunch and 300 for dinner. And all of us were like, what is happening here? Like it was very tight. The space was very tight. Um, we didn't have a prep kitchen at that point of time. We only had one cool room and it was hard. Like it was really hard and Tim obviously opened it as um, head chef and then Richie moved into that position quite early on and I stepped into the sous chef position and from a, both a food point of view and a management point of view, I think we both went in with, you know, an ARIA mindset and learnt pretty quickly that we needed to change that. Like that wasn't the realm that we were now living in and we needed to adapt to a new venue, a new food narrative, a new staffing kind of capability um, a different team, teams that we weren't used to. Like we were so fortunate at Aria that we had had, you know, long-standing colleagues there for many, many years. Um, going into a new team and having new people around us, like it was kind of shell-shocking, to be honest, um, and a big learning curve. And I think that that's where we kind of started looking at every business in a different set of eyes like no business is the same and shouldn't be managed in the same way you should be going in there with a new perspective on it and saying okay well it's good but can it be better and asking yourself the questions as to you know what other systems can we put into place and what can we do to make it better you mentioned that you went to aria because you wanted to immerse yourself into fine dining and chiswick does set an amazing standard but it's far more relaxed environment did 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 that kitchen and that environment change your approach and thinking about food yes yeah look it was chiswick's built to be farm to table paddock to plate and not messing around with too many ingredients not taking them out of the realm that they were produced in and being able to look at one product, be able to put it on the plate with two to three other elements on it and let that product shine, um, working with the best of the best. So it was, it taught you that doing simple food was harder than doing fine dining food because you've got little room to, to make mistakes because you are working with such simple ingredients. So it definitely changed the way that we looked at food, um, the way we worked with our producers, um, the way that we sourced, uh, the way that we plated. Like it was 
it was different. Like we, we, we went in there and, you know, I think to a certain point, you know, we tried to, we tried to play in, in a way and learned very quickly that no, like, you know, it's not, it isn't that venue. Chiswick became an important part of your life. You became head chef at Chiswick at the gallery. What was it like um, transferring and, and um, putting that offering into the gallery? It was, I was 22 at that point of time when I went into the gallery and that was my first head chef position. Um, the Chiswick part of the gallery was something that I had learnt and that kind of came quite naturally. Um, it was the other facets of the art gallery that really challenged me and stepped me into kind of that next level of being a head chef. Um, I was thrown in the deep end and I remember Peter Sullivan telling me a little while after we had opened the gallery that we were supposed to have an executive chef go in there and, and look over the whole thing and that person pulled out um, late in the stage of when we were just about to open. And I remember asking, like, where is he? And they're like, oh, yeah, he's yeah not coming. Um, and going, well, hang on a second, <laughs> what's happening here? And Pete then told me that they had had a conversation and pretty much said, look, you know, I reckon she can do it. Let's put her in there and give her the support and let's see how she goes. And that business is a cafe, a, two cafes, a restaurant and a huge event space. So there was, it was a multifaceted business. Um, I had never really done events and large scale events at that point. Um, the galleries prepared to do 500 sit downs, 1800 canapes, um, as well as doing a, a restaurant and a cafe at the same time. So it was definitely a learning curve and something that you need to be incredibly organised. Um, and Simon Sandal was the group chef at the time who, you know, supported that with me and kind of guided me in the right direction as to how to be able to to manage what is a beast of a venue. Um, but it was very much a big stepping stone for me. Do you have any stories of, of, of an event that you put on uh, during that time at the gallery and sort of what it took to pull it together? Um, the gallery is a space where you get a lot of corporate clients and they come to you with bespoke events. And one that sticks in my mind was um, Amex came to us for a 40-packs sit-down and they wanted a degustation of World War Two of what the troops ate in the trenches. And... I'm like, um, yep, <laughs> okay, so you want warm beef? Like, what do you want? Like, what are we looking at here? So it took a lot of research um, to get it to where it needed to be and we were doing things like hand tinning um, smoked jelly deals and there was research that we had done that brought curry to light, so we were doing like a curry dish into there and then the main course was this um, – corned beef, like corned wagyu beef that we had shaved and then reduced the consomme down to a jelly and then and into a concentrate that we then walked out and poured tins of hot water over like they would um, have had in the trenches. And it was 
something that with events you see these big things come to life and you you get pleasure out of seeing people enjoy them and seeing what has been months of research development trying to get it to the table and pushing different limits um to watch it come into fruition and watch people actually really enjoy it and really get amongst it it's it's very rewarding the, su- the successes you had um, with that position at the art gallery led to um, executive chef roles with Opera Bar and, and the catering arm. Um, what was it like moving out of restaurant settings and sort of really immersing into that? Opera Bar was a different challenge. Opera Bar was, um, I was put into Opera Bar to, to change a culture, um, a kitchen culture that at that point of time I had. 16 shifts a week calling in sick and we were having to really think on our feet to to try and fix that problem um kind of having to go in there and dig deep into finding out why this was happening and how we would turn it around um was a big was a big learning curve for me and looking at a a much bigger business, a bigger scale of business, like Opera Bar's licensed for 1,800 people at any given time. So you can have a day in summer where it's it's not unusual to have 100 dockets on that pass and just be pushing. Um, the team there was 54 chefs at, during summer, um, which then came with its with its own management kind of struggles and you really had to face that on a day-to-day basis and we went in there and had a look at it and you kind of when you've got a business that's been operating for you know 15 to 20 years now um you're reluctant to change anything because you kind of go it works we don't want to rock the apple cart um, and I remember the first thing that I did was getting docket machines onto every section and we plugged them all in and John Gallus, the GM at the time, and one of my mentors turned around to me and he goes, well, are you going to turn them on? I'm like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like uh, maybe. <laughs> but it was a big part of the culture point was the – the fact that you do run so many dockets and you've got so much food coming in there. One of our biggest nights was 600 pizzas and you're calling every single docket from that pass and like pretty much yelling it. And it was kind of like, well, this is part of the culture. Like, you know, I don't want to stand on the pass and yell all the time. And the, you know, the chefs feel like they're being yelled at because I'm just having to stop them and say, okay, guys, listen up. We've got, and then read off 30 dockets and they've just got to remember what they've got on. And the way that they used to do that was, you know, counting plates and flipping bowls over for wedges and bowls up the right side were for chips. Um, Pizza section used to count out how many olives and that was how many pepperonis they had on that, on that fire. And it's like this, there has to be a better way. So we turned, ended up getting the confidence and turning the docket machines on on, on a midweek um, and teaching them how to use dockets on each section and how to communicate with one another. And it took a little 
took a little while to get used to it. Um, but then it became a kind of silent, silent pass where the chefs didn't have to call out every docket. We were just communicating with the kitchen where we were at, um, what dockets we were looking at, and it eased that kitchen and made it a lot more calmer um, rather than so much chaos. So that was a big part of putting something into a, a business that was obviously operating very, very well before we came into it, but looking at it with a new set of eyes and just saying, look, you know, we can, we can do this better and we can try doing different things. Um, and there was a few other things that we put into place, um, started rotating chefs around and we saw that 16 shifts come down to maybe five shifts a week calling in sick. And then that was like, okay, well, we need to make it better again. Uh, we took it to a one double roster and that made it better again. And then we took it to a four day roster and gave them three days off and all of a sudden we had no, no sick leave. So we changed that pretty quickly. And part of me going into that business was making sure that we sat down regularly with every one of the staff and, you know, 54 chefs. That's a, a good chunk of two weeks to sit down with them all individually and find out what they wanted and then work through that. Um, but it was a big point for, for Opera Bar that that culture be, be right. It is a venue that pumps. How did it feel when you got the role as group chef? Um, daunting, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> um, no good. Like I think that the 10 year, well, 12 years that I had worked up until that point, um, was getting me ready for, for the position that I'm in now into, you know, I didn't just stay in one venue for, for the 15 years. I had jumped around into different facets of venues and I'd done the fine diner. I'd done the casual restaurant. I'd been in Paddington Inn for, for three months to reopen that as bar and grill. So I'd done the small pub side of things, done the big bar of opera bar and then done the catering side. So, and seeing the different businesses and how they ran and how they were organized and operated and understand each and every business as an individual um, got me ready for, for the position that I'm in now. And to be honest, like I love those venues as if they're my own. Um, the staff that are in them, my head chefs, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for them. They're the ones that, you know, work the trenches every day and make the customers happy and deal with the problems on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, we are there to support them for whatever they need. You've been in this role pretty much since the pandemic started. What's it, what's it been like with so many restaurant offerings and challenging times as well um, during this time in the role that you're in? Yeah, I started in the February and I think COVID hit us in the March, April, end of March, early April. So I was only in the position for a short amount of time before I got a phone call on a Saturday night saying we need to get into a boardroom tomorrow and start looking at reducing the menus because we're, we're seeing a load of cancellations. Um, and then within two to three days after that, the plan was very much changed as to what do we do with all the food? What are we doing with the chefs? We're shutting down these businesses. Um, and that was kind of like, well, 
what. And I remember going into certain businesses and seeing, you know, tiers of of staff that I've worked with for such a long time and watching Opera Bar move all its furniture out and seeing it empty um, was heartbreaking. And we then kind of took a couple of weeks to to get our heads together and um, we were doing a bit of cleaning in the venues and I was doing a bit of stuff for, for Matt as far as recipe writing is concerned and then – I got a phone call saying we need to we need to have a discussion about opening up Chiswick Takeaway. I was like, "Yep, hundred percent. Let's get let's get it done." So we went in there, and it was the build up to Mother's Day at that point of time. Um, and we had never really done takeaway anywhere, and kind of getting our heads around it when you know you're used to putting things on a plate to you know having to put things in a box and drive it around the block a couple of times to make sure it it ends up in a house the way that we want it to was something totally different. Um, We ended up launching Chiswick Takeaway for Mother's Day and, again, probably one of the hardest hardest weeks that we ever did building up to it. We had to open, end up opening another three kitchens to be able to produce the the amount of food that we did for Chiswick. I think we ended up doing somewhere around 700, 700 orders. Um, for Mother's Day, and it meant opening up PHP to grill breads and opening up Pado Inn to be able to cook enough lambs to make the production happen. So Turner was cooking lambs and I was at Chiswick counting all the portions out, getting all the bags ready, Um, and then, yeah, we just turned it on and we had all the head chefs back. So I had all the head chefs from all the venues in for Mother's Day, um, which was quite fun. I think I remember that time there was me, Joel Bickford and Matt Moran standing on the on the pass, doing the pass for Mother's Day. We're all looking at each other just laughing, going, <laughs> this is incredible. <laughs> it takes an army. <laughs> um, but no, it was, a, it was a lot of fun, but it was definitely a different mentality to – to turn your head into into takeaway and then we um, gave North Bondi Fish a shot at doing takeaway and then the second lockdown we ended up turning on Providor, which was then a different spectrum again. So we're still doing hot takeaway for, for Chiswick, but then we started doing reheat at home or cook at home boxes um, for Chiswick and Chop House and then that brought a totally different logistics perspective onto us. And, you know, we were packing boxes to, to open up our brands into the wider regions of Sydney and into the ACT, um, which has been an incredible process and something that we still are doing for Chiswick. So it's been, yeah, a lot of fun and a lot more learnings. <laughs> what are you loving about the the role that you have now that, you know, the industry's open up again and, Um, we're moving forward. My role is very diverse and that's what I love about it. No day is the same. Um, I could be in restaurants one day in Sydney. I can be in Bathurst the next at Rockley. Um, I deal with a lot of Matt's farm produce and I, I love watching that coming to Sydney and being able to get it into the venues or making salamis out of it with Pinots and, um, doing a lot of the media stuff. 
I think that the pandemic taught us all to to be able to pivot and pivot quickly, um, think about different things, be able to problem solve on our feet and not look at everything in an, in an eye as to, oh, God, it's going to be too hard. Like, look at it as an opportunity um, to, to do something different. And I was fortunate enough during the pandemic that, you know, I was still working um, and doing things. And I know that other people weren't as fortunate to be able to do that. And I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for that. And I think that it gave me a big learning opportunity to see different aspects of what the businesses could do rather than just being restaurants. Like they, they learned to pivot really well and the staff learned to problem solve amazingly. You're in a really uh, dynamic role and grew up in a, a food-loving family. What, what do you love about what you do? I enjoy being around the food. I enjoy um, the part of my job where I get to meet producers and farmers um, and spend time with them and understand the hard work that goes into it on their end to bring it to the table. It's something that unless you've spent time with a farmer that I think that you can get swept away into just ingredients arriving at the door and taking advantage of that until you actually meet the person who's doing the hard work to actually bring it to that door. It's something that I hold very dear and we spent a day on a potato farm um, two years ago with a potato farmer called Gary and he had one of the most phenomenal stories and it was probably one of the best days that we had done is just traveling around his potatoes, doing harvesting and seeing how much he does for not only his community, but the, the land that he, that he farms. Um, and it gave you a new perspective of a potato, you know, that ingredient and how much love has gone into it to then bring it to the table and not just think about it as, you know, chips or mash, you think about it in a perspective as to how do we highlight that as one of the main ingredients on the dish and not use it just as a side. Um, and that has to be one of the biggest, you know, joys that I get is being able to, to work with incredible producers and farmers and be able to use their ingredients and support them any way that we possibly can. How do you see the next couple of years? The the group's um, gone into regional New South Wales now with the, with the pub. Um, how, how do you see things shaping up in the next couple of years? Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of growth. Um, Rockley is a passion project for Matt and something that he's, he holds very dear to his heart. Um, it's eight minutes from, from his farm and it's an incredible project. Um, it's a an incredible community around there and the locals are just, you know, taking us in with open arms for the, for the most part. And it's going to be a big project and something that's going to take a few years to, to get to where it is. But, um, yeah, there's definitely going to be some, some more growth and some different opportunities come to, come to the table. And I think that, you know, it's exciting to see the new challenges and be part of that and also be able to bring people into the fold to be able to to learn it and understand it and give them a new opportunity. Well, Laura, look forward to seeing um, what you guys do. And uh, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a bit of your story. Please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you very much. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. 
I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.